You're listening to The Mix Podcast, where we explore user behavior, emerging technologies, and how to design better digital experiences. As a designer tasked with, for example, designing a kettle, my responsibility ends at the plug on the end of the cable. I don't have to think about where the energy comes from, where the electricity comes from, because that's so much taken for granted. But what happens if we remove that assumption? What happens through the wall is the, the metaphor behind the project. Hello, I'm Marek Pawlowski, founder of MEX, and that was James Auger. He's an associate professor at the Madeira Interactive Technologies Institute, and one part of the duo who created Crap Futures. This is a blog and project which examines whether some of the technology developments that we take for granted are actually leading to better lives for, well, the humans who have to use them. His partner in this endeavour is Julian Hanna, also at the Madeira Interactive Technologies Institute and is an assistant professor. And I had a chance to speak with them both over Skype from their island base out on this little island in the Atlantic. That's the main event for this podcast, and I'm going to tell you a bit more about James and Julian in a moment. But before that, a reminder about our MEX jobs board. So this is the place where companies who share the user-centered design values of the MEX community can list their latest roles and share them with all the talented people in the MEX network. People like you listening to this podcast, the people who read our journal, the people who come to our events. So if you're hiring at the moment, just head over to mobileuserexperience.com slash jobs and you can post your roles up on the board. It costs £139 plus VAT and we'll feature them for 30 days across all of our different MEX channels, including on this podcast. And if you're looking for your next challenge, well, there's a wealth of positions around the world to choose from already. I mean, if you're looking down the list, we have got jobs like a design director uh, for Telefonica Alpha in Barcelona in Spain, senior service design consultant at Experience Lab in London, uh, PwC uh, looking for a couple of different strategy roles in experience design strategy, one in Los Angeles, one in Chicago. Uh, Barclays Bank are after a UI developer in the UK. And in Denmark, there are two different roles. One, a UX designer for a company which specializes in products for those who are hard of hearing, GN hearing, uh, and uh, head of user experience prototypes and usability at Novo Nordisk. Uh, it's all over there at mobileuserexperience.com slash jobs. Uh, so if you're hiring or you're looking, then head on over and have a look at what's out there. So back to today's interview, it's something a little bit different. Firstly, it's a tag team format. I was talking to James and Julian together, which is not something that we've done on the podcast for a while. And secondly, it really questions some of the assumptions which when you're working in this area of digital experience design, I think sometimes we can take a bit for granted. But let, let's be real here for a moment. Who among us hasn't had moments when you've harbored some nagging doubts at the back of your mind about whether or not this digital age that we're ushering in is really the path to a better future? Now, James and Julian confront this head on with crap futures but they come at it from slightly different perspectives. I mean, neither of them are Luddites by any stretch of the imagination. They're working day to day at Madeira's Interactive Technologies Institute. But Julian comes from more of a creative arts background with a PhD in literature. Uh, he's had articles published in titles like the Journal of Modern Literature and the Atlantic magazine. Uh, he also wrote the book Key Concepts in Modernist Literature. James, on the other hand, has a product design background. He's worked and lectured all over the world, including some time working at the Issey Miyake Design Studio in Tokyo uh, and tutoring at the Royal College of Art in London. And his designs have been exhibited at the Museum of Modern Art in New York, the Science Museum in London. And he's also a partner in a design practice, which he founded, uh, Orga Loiseau. With Crap Futures, 
They identify and analyze some of the ways in which technology is failing to serve users, often using that slightly different perspective that they have from living on the island of Madeira, away from big product development centers, to step back and, and illuminate the problem. Are we getting to talk about some of those examples from, from their blog and this project, uh, some of the techniques that we can all use to ensure digital experiences don't end up leading to a crap future, uh, and an exciting new venture which they're about to embark upon to build something they're calling the Newton Machine, uh, which is a collaboration with some fellow islanders, but this time in the Orkney Islands, uh, up in the far north of Scotland. So for reference, James has the British accent, and Julian is the Canadian. Here we go. James, Julian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join me today. It's a pleasure. Glad to be here. Now, I understand you are dialing in from the island of Madeira. What's Madeira looking like this morning? I was out early this morning and it was beautiful. Um, sunny day, about 20 degrees, uh, ocean looking calm. It sounds idyllic. So now that all of our listeners in uh, the Northern Hemisphere and um, the, the Nordics are feeling suitably jealous, I suppose we can get on to the, the main business of our discussion, which is uh, to talk a little bit about some of the projects that you guys have been working on, in particular, the one which I think catches everyone's attention by virtue of its slightly provocative name, Crap Futures. Now, I'm curious. It's obviously something that you have been working on together for a while now, but did you come to the realization that the future might not be quite as good as we were hoping separately? Or was this something which came out of a, a joint conversation together? What, what was it like for you, James? Oh, that discussion's slightly lost in the mists of time, I think. We did our, well, not argue, we were we were both slightly happy when we came up with the, the idea of crap futures and a quick search through the internet realized that nobody was using it at this time. So we, we registered it quite quickly and then ummed and ahed for about two weeks whether it was sensible, whether it was a little bit too <laughs> playful or provocative. Um, but then around that time, it was just as we were leading up to the, the referendum in the UK on whether the UK should leave the EU. And... A little bit later on was the uh, US election. <laughs> and both of these had the opposite outcome uh, that we might have otherwise desired. So the name somehow took a little bit more resonance. And uh, a few people were saying it's, it's the ideal title for our times. Yeah, I mean, it certainly struck a chord and there is a, a naturally provocative kind of statement in that. But Julian, for you, did you find that you were on the same page with James in terms of the things you were seeing happening within digital that you imagined might not be leading to a particularly happy path towards the the future? Um, or were you both bringing different ideas as to, to where we might be going off the rails slightly with some of these uh, approaches to our digital life? Um, yeah, I, I, uh, I wouldn't say I'm a gloomy or pessimistic person, but on the other hand, or, or particularly a, a Luddite, um, but on the other hand, I am coming from the humanities, and I was a bit shocked when I started working at this um, technology institute uh, here in Madeira uh, at the kind of lack of critical perspective that a lot of the engineers seemed to have uh, when they were coming up with ideas. Um, so that was a specific kind of thing that I was thinking about when James um, arrived at the same institute and we started talking. Um, so I was kind of thinking more about, not not so much about exposing the crap is just um, kind of inserting a, a, a more critical view that you would think would be um, common, but uh, wasn't. <laughs> there were, there were um, surprisingly few voices kind of count, uh, acting as counterpoint to the kind of Silicon Valley message. Yeah, it's interesting to be thinking about these things from the perspective of working in an environment like the island of Madeira. Now, did you start at the institute there first, Julian, before James did? Uh, yeah, I was um, by chance. I was in Lisbon first. I'm originally from Vancouver, and I, I came from Vancouver to Lisbon in 2008, and then about four years ago moved over to Madeira um, to the institute here. Uh, and then James, I think, came 
two years, two ago. years ago. So what attracted you to the role there? Because yeah, for someone such as myself, not knowing Madeira tremendously well, it, it seems like a slightly incongruous thing, the idea of this technology institute based on this little island out in the, the sea. What was it which compelled you to take up that role? Um, it is incongruous, and it was also kind of incongruous with my career in uh, English literature. Um, but uh, the uh, it's a really interesting institute, and it was kind of formed as an iconoclastic um, sort of uh, offshoot from the from the university here. So I liked the the adventurous um, kind of stance it was taking, and and the it, the institute at the time was trying to pull in people like James uh, and like. Uh, you know, myself and people from the humanities and design and um, social sciences to balance the engineers and computer programmers. Was there a particular person within the, the faculty that the management at the Institute that was driving that at the time that felt the importance of bringing in, you say, that more kind of human perspective on, on technology? Uh, I'd have to credit the, the, the original um, kind of founder and president, uh, Nuno Nunish, who uh, I don't know how much he uh, understood about all of the perspectives he was bringing in, um, but he was open-minded and keen to bring in um, a, a kind of diverse uh, faculty. So when you started to uh, work under this Crap Futures title and, and started to craft the block, did you have like a, a working theme to start with or a, a statement of intent of what you wanted it? to be or was that something that evolved as you started to, to put the word out there evolved i think really in the early days it, it was it was a quite a strange environment to come into the, the the summer holidays in madeira quite drawn out particularly in academia so i arrived early september and was shown to my office it was completely bare there was nothing in there there was nobody to talk to uh, apart from Julian. And so we just started discussing. It was about three weeks until people started showing up. And we were just working through ideas, thinking about what kind of projects we might do, coming up with perspectives on the technology. And I think after about two or three weeks, we had about 18 pages of writing, uh, just rough sketches, ideas, links to different things. And one day we just thought, it's a shame to let this go to waste. Uh, maybe there's, 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 there's a blog here. So we just worked through some of the ideas, found different threads, started writing basically, and, and decided, uh, I think it was one day in November, today's the day, we, we, we published the first post based on the cafe where we did a lot of the writing, uh, looking at ideas of autonomy, um, because as you were talking about the island, it's a particular place. It's, it's quite remote and it's somehow... A little bit lost in time so we were comparing the, the the people that were working in the cafe who essentially automated the service they knew exactly what we were wanting every day and they'd be putting the toast in the machine before we even walked in the room just as amazon are claiming to be able to do knowing what people want before they know it themselves so this contrast between interactions with people automation and technology just naturally emerged out of our experience uh, and and the blog uh, continued quite quickly from that point. Well, that's one of the things which has struck me about the writing on the blog, and I guess was one of the reasons why I wanted to get in touch with you guys and record this podcast, was that the human voice behind all of these situations really shines through and resonates through the, the writing. There was one in particular which caught my eye, which was your story about what happened at your local swimming spot when they tried to introduce a new form of automation to let people in and out of the place. Can you tell me a bit more about where the inspiration for that article came from? And obviously we'll put a link into the show notes so people can go and read the original story. But I'm curious, you know, what really made it resonate with you and, and prompted you to write about it? Well, uh, the main uh, entertainment on the island is um, swimming. And so we go down a couple of times a week, sometimes at lunch, usually on the weekends to um, to swim. And it's in the sea. There's not really any uh, lakes or rivers. Um, and the sea is not beach sea, uh, beachfront sea either. It's um, straight into the deep ocean, uh, kind of off a concrete um, pier. Um, so we, I guess, we're, we're usually discussing things like automation and lofty ideas, but 
the pro part of the project is to kind of connect those ideas to, um, you know, everyday concrete experiences uh, in Madeira and, and from and an island perspective. And so we kind of mashed up this the kind of big ideas of automation with uh, our daily experiences of trying to make the uh, ticket scanner work. They, they imported the, these automatic ticket machines, I think, a few years ago. And they seemed like they were completely unnecessary. There was one person who was standing in the booth uh, who I guess he used to pay. Um, and then you would go in to the swimming complex and they automated it so that there was still a person in the booth, but that you would scan your ticket and go in instead. So the, booth, the person in the booth kind of became irrelevant, except that the machine broke almost immediately, I think, or it's been broken as long as I've been here. Uh, so you, the person, every, every time someone comes up to the ticket, turnstiles the person in the booth comes out and helps them um, usually kind of opens the gate with a key and or and sneaks helps them in or it. helps them to scan the ticket uh, they've actually now since we wrote that they've built a kind of awning over the machine to try to make it work better by shadowing it from the sun so it was just interesting to see how these kind of mainland ideas of technology and innovation were brought into an island context that didn't really um, have it have a an immediate need for them um, and then what happened when they couldn't be kind of up, uh, kept, uh, kept up and repaired? Yeah, it's a, a quite a compelling image that I think this idea of that sort of technological monolith standing there in the island climate, rusting away, not as being especially useful. And the fact that people feel compelled to still try, you know, there's something about when you place a technological object in front of people like that, that even, as you say, there's a human assistant there, the, the human gatekeeper still there doing their job. Just by placing that technological object in the flow of how people use these kind of services, people sort of feel like they have to at least give it a try and that there's a like a, a, a draw to that piece of technology, even if they know that it doesn't work or suspect that it doesn't work. I wonder why that is. Well, myths of progress, perhaps. The idea that the technological future is somehow better than the present. Uh, I don't know. I mean, these, these kind of ideas are, have been knocking around for a couple of hundred years, probably more. I experienced a hilarious situation. I was teaching uh, at a design school in Geneva, and they built a new building one summer. It went up almost, <clears throat> almost in a couple of months, but it was a supposedly smart building with smart lifts and smart windows, smart shutters, smart doors. There was a smart key that had a little digital face on it that smiled if the key was, uh, was, was allowed to open a particular door. But nothing ever worked quite right. So, I mean, one of our big in inspirations was um, the science fiction writer Ray Bradbury, who often talks about these, these problematic futures where Technology doesn't work out quite right, and J.G. Uh, Ballard as well. And this 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 building and, and the, the attempts at automation in Madeira are just perfect examples of these things. That you'd be giving a lecture at this in this in, in one of the buildings in one of the rooms in the building, and the shutters would just randomly start closing, and you'd be trying to figure out well, what aspects of the, the building's intelligence have decided that now's the right time to close the shutters. Mm -hmm. The smart buttons on the lift wouldn't work half of the time. It, it brought to mind the, I don't know if you've seen the new series of Fargo, but the, one of the lead characters in that is invisible to automated systems. She puts her hands underneath the automated taps in the washroom and they don't come on. Um, the automatic doors don't sense her presence. <laughs> and it's just this lovely thing about uh, it's smart technologies, reading humans and understanding what we want, but commonly not getting it quite right because indeed we're quite complicated people mm. the the um the swimming complex uh, example also brings up interesting ideas about um adaptation and and uh kind of the reasons for um bringing in new technology in the first place like um there wasn't really any need for it uh, nobody's in a hurry in the island and usually automation is to kind of smooth smooth and speed up um, processes but nobody was there was never a queue Nobody was ever in a hurry to get into the swimming complex. They never needed more than one person to work there. Uh, and then also the way that people adapt to a broken system. Um, you know, the people that the person working there had gotten very quick about getting out of her booth and going around to, you know, uh, get you in the door or through the turnstile. Yeah, it's 
it makes me wonder a little bit about how we get better at making these kind of digital experiences more relevant uh, on a wider scale. And when you think about where a lot of these technologies originate, there seems to be still quite a centralization to that. And yeah, this is possibly a bit of a sweeping statement, but um, the sense that you know, it's it's emerging from quite specific centers in places like Silicon Valley and cities like London, where you have real concentrations of talent and companies and capital working together. And that there is that risk that as these things are deployed further and further from those geographical centers, their relevance becomes less to the people that actually have to use them on a day-to-day basis. And it kind of makes me wonder about where that future might go in terms of the people who are actually tasked with building this stuff and whether or not we need to think more about how we can decentralize that a little bit and perhaps buy into some of the principles of remote working in that, you know, there's only a certain amount that you can do by sending out teams from those geographical centers to go and do field research on the ground, which will obviously improve things. But ultimately, they still go back to the sort of hothouse environment of being in a big technology center and developing things in that context and then sending them back out into the world. In the course of putting together something like Crap Futures, is is that something that you've been thinking about, about ways that we can actually try to improve that development process? Yes and no. I mean, from my perspective, the, the, the peripheries thing is, is definitely relevant and that's something we're trying to, trying to switch around. So learning them from the periphery rather than the periphery just being on the receiving end of what happens in, in the centers. But yeah. before we get to that, I think we need to start critiquing the, the current situation where Silicon Valley has essentially become so powerful that it's dictating and curating all of our futures. Uh, you know, the lobbying power of these big tech companies now is phenomenal. If, if we go back in time a couple of years, I remember being at MIT and, and, and hearing one of the pr- professors talk about the driverless cars that they were trying to develop were going back probably 20, 20 odd years. And the big problem was legislation, how you could ever ensure these things. And it was a huge, huge barrier. And suddenly Google gets on board and, and a lot of the, both the tech companies and the, and the motor car companies jump on board as well. And suddenly driverless cars are a uh, clear future for, for, for transportation. But there's never any discussion about what the implications might be. You have the, the classic motivations of it being safer, of it being more efficient uh, and so on. But never ever a discussion about what might go wrong with, with such a system. And this, I think for us, is, is one of the key critiques, one of the biggest things that the, the, the ideas we keep going back to in Crap Futures is this idea that technology simply is good, that uh, technological progress leads to preferable futures, that the Silicon Valley version of life 20 years from now will be better than any other's version. Uh, you know, and we see this as being highly problematic when you're talking about provocative technologies like uh, Amazon Echo, a service owned by Amazon. Amazon essentially curating your whole lifestyle, the type of goods that you buy, the services that you subscribe to, the, the products that, that you bring into the home, obviously being products that are in line with, with Amazon's agenda. Um, and nobody discussing this stuff. Um, and this is the big problem. I think the problem emerges from the centers because the, the, the pace of change is so rapid that we're not keeping up. We just consume, 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 buy the latest generation product, phone, uh, internal uh, domestic servant like the Echo without any reflection because where is the time to reflect? And this, I think, is the, the, the perfect role of the periphery of coming to somewhere like Madeira is because I came from one of those big centers. I was in London for the previous uh, 10 or 12 years. So for me, it was almost like stepping out of that world and from a godlike perspective, looking back on it, looking at how life was, you know, it's not an exact um, transition, but it's, just, it's essentially like looking back from time, going back 20 or 30 years when things were slightly less technologically mediated. So you can reflect and, and see the difference in a very profound way. 
So that's how I think one of the ways we learn from the periphery is it allows you to step out of this rapidly changing environment and stop just engaging in everything as it happens in real time. In, in terms of uh, islands as well, I think uh, it's harder to escape from um, the kind of, well, it's harder to escape from reality in, on an island. Uh, it's more of a whole ecosystem than, uh, you know, you can't lead the kind of blinkered life you can in a, in a city. So you kind of have to deal with all the negative aspects of, of, of technologies as well as positives. It, it is interesting that, you know, the more you talk to people who work in this space, whether it's um, from you know, your sort of perspective where you've created this, you know, deliberately quite provocative sort of counterstatement to some of the, the, the acceleration in, in progress that, that's happening around technology or whether it's people who are fully immersed in it. Almost everyone, when you get talking to them, will confess to there being a degree of hesitancy and uncertainty about whether or not this is a, a wholly positive path. And I see at the, the top of the, the Crap Futures blog, you quote Ray Bradbury, where he says, people ask me to predict the future when all I want to do is prevent it. And yeah, mm-hmm. I think almost everyone who works in design or user experience or technology or whatever you want to call it these days um, has had that feeling at some point. And I just wonder whether that's something which has intensified in the last several years or whether that's always been a lingering concern i mean you've both been involved in this area for some time in in, in different roles uh, have you always had that nagging concern or is there something in particular which has really brought it to a head in the last few years for you uh, just briefly i would say that i, I kind of was thrown in the deep end uh, a few years ago when i arrived here at this institute and uh, i can't say it's gotten better <laughs> in the last uh, couple of years, uh, as James as James said, when we came up with the idea of crap futures, it, things didn't look quite so crap as they as they have gotten um, since. So, uh, I think the, there is a feeling of acceleration or accelerated pessimism around technology and and kind of corporate control and that kind of thing. Mm. I don't know. It's, it's another problem is the difficulty of just getting a, a, a wider perspective on these things. For me, it goes back a little bit longer. Uh, I trained as an industrial designer in the 90s. And one of the, one, one thing that stuck in my mind, one of the tutors uh, one day was just giving us a pep talk. And essentially, he said, you're the good guys. You're improving people's lives. Design is, is, is really a, a fundamental aspect of modern life in, in improving the quality of people's lives. And that stuck with me for a while. You know, you, 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 you're brought up, you're trained to think that you're, you're doing a good job, not quite on a level as nurses and doctors, perhaps, but at least it's something constructive in society. And it wasn't until probably 10 years down the line, I started to question this. Uh, I started uh, an MA at the Royal College of Art, and the whole theme of the platform I was working on was more critical approaches to design and technology. And you realize that design is just a part of this huge construct of conspicuous consumption, of manipulating people's desires and making them buy more and more things. And you'll see that this is is another thread that runs through through the blog. And it started making me very, very, not quite ashamed, but very critical of, of the role of design in the world. I would say, I, I've got no figures to back this up, but probably 90% of the world's designers operate in the systems of, of capitalism, of, of making more and more products. And most of those designers operate in a bubble. Objects are quite small, usually on the human scale. And all they're focusing on is, is the form of those objects and how we interact with them and making them sexy and desirable so people want to buy them. Technology coming along to iterate products beyond the, the, the current system, beyond the current uh, format. So you get this product iteration, you get generations, more things to buy every second year or third year. And uh, it's, it's only when you start to see design in that role that you can then take a step back, and the island's been good for this, but to think about other ways that design could be. Design not just about selling more things, but design that really starts to question, well, what is a preferable future? What are more meaningful ways of interacting with things, with our environment, with other people, and so on? So that's that's it for me. Is is not It's not just a sudden 
realization that these things are problematic. It's it's been an ongoing investigation for a number of years. Yeah, it's um, you know it feels like there's a bit of an upswell of sentiment around this. Uh, I also spoke on the podcast um, a few episodes ago with uh, the chap who wrote uh, the book Ends, which looks at this idea of why we um, have spent. Uh, so little time considering the offboarding experience of products in the way that we spend so much time now focused on the onboarding experience of how we get people to buy more and more of the new, but without really giving more much consideration to what happens when those things come to the end of their life or the user wants to stop using them and go off and do something else. Uh, and it really you know, brings into focus some of those questions about whether or not we're designing these things in a, a circular way or whether or not we're designing things which um, can end elegantly rather than leaving us with this sort of unwanted hangover of all these different bits of technology that we pick up throughout our lives. Yeah, well, that, that, that makes sense in a way. You know, I think it's, it's, the risk is that we, we sound um, a little bit too nostalgic. Uh, it's something that we, we, we're aware of and we are battling against. But you know, we go back 100 years in time and, and, and there wasn't much better balance between people and, and the objects that they interacted with. You know, ideas of fixing things, of inheritance, of cherishing an object for, for a long period of time. I mean, my grandfather gave me a, an analog camera when I was probably 12 years old and it was the most important object I had until it was actually stolen <laughs> in Sri Lanka a number of years later and I was devastated but if you compare that to the relationship you have with a digital camera which is obsolete uh, within around two years usually because the, the rate of change is so rapid the older systems were almost inevitably a little bit more harmonious with uh, with the environment in which we live because they weren't driven by this rampant need to, to buy and consume more things. I mean, this is for me is the big problem is just the way the economy has to grow. You know, we're told that the economy must be growing all of the time. A company, the shareholders must be happy, must, must be placated because their investment needs to grow, the company needs to grow. And it's this need for change that, that, that leads to most of the problems we have. Mm-hmm. If, if we just found ways of encouraging stability rather than growth, it might be, <laughs> we might have a little bit more of a harmonious environment, uh, re- relationship with our environment, for example. But in a constructive sense as well, we can look at, rather than just thinking about going back in time, we can look at um, ways that we could do things differently. For example, using um, more of a hybrid of digital and analog um, technologies or you know designing things differently so that so that everything doesn't go through your phone or, you know, d- designing bespoke objects to do different tasks. I don't know. James would know more about that than I would. <laughs> no, it's a, an interesting notion because I think while obviously it's a very necessary counterpoint at the moment to have something like Crap Futures out there getting people to, as you say, just question this widely accepted notion that technology naturally equals progress equals good. Clearly, we do also need to look at the specifics of what makes uh, a a piece of progress a positive thing. And I'm curious for for you both, really, are there particular hallmarks that you look for in examples which would never make it into something like crap futures, into something which you look at and think that is most definitely not part of the crap future. This is part of a future that I actually you know want to be a part of myself. Um, are there particular characteristics that you uh, you see as being inspiring in the way that we can create these objects better? Yeah, well, for sure. Probably best not to dive into our own examples, but a bit, a bit egotistical. But, um, we we were inspired, and we've written about this as well as Alfred Borgman, the philosopher's device paradigm, who uh, Borgman makes a differentiation between things and devices. Um, so the thing connects an object to its outside world. He talks about the fireplace or the hearth as being an example of a thing. People gather around it for warmth. You might cook your food there. It uses wood that's been gathered through the summer months, connecting you to your local environment. You know how to, to make the fire. You know how long the fires might last. And the whole thing is very transparent. You have control over it. So he compares that with the device 
And his example of a device is a central heating system where you essentially have a, a switch on a wall and the whole energy infrastructure in the background is invisible and intangible. You have no control over it. You don't know how it works and you don't know what to do when it goes wrong. So I think for us, the examples that we're inspired by are uh, projects that, that represent thingness, things, objects, devices, interactions that connect you to the background environment, that, that reveal the ecosystems in which they operate, that give you a sense of empowerment, I suppose. Mm-hmm. But fundamentally, and it comes back to the uh, statement I was making recently, a little moment ago, is that they're not just nostalgic. Obviously, going and collecting firewood through the summer months is nostalgic and problematic. And this is one of the things that technology has been great on, is, is alleviating as of some of the burdens that existed in the past. So it's finding very new ways of creating things would be the best way I could describe what inspires me. And, and recognizing that often it's uh, not really the technology that's that's um, taking things in, the, in a direction that, you know, taking you away from, for example, nature or a more, more holistic life, but uh, capitalism really, that it doesn't, it's not inherent to technology that it, that it goes in this direction. It doesn't have to go to nest. Um, you know, there's lots of ways to use digital technology and uh, in harmony with um, nature or a more holistic life. Would it be too simplistic to summarize it as the contrast between consuming something versus participating in something? You know, going back to that idea of, of Borman's difference between the, the thing and the device. Is that too much of a simplification? It probably is. It, it does work. But I think the, the thing that we, we encourage people to do or even just to think about is, is, is just to consider every single act and what, how we would desire that act to play out. So and this is the big problem with modern devices. They're, 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 you know, they're like digital Swiss Army knives, the mobile phone, the smartphone can do so many things. Um, but all of them, I would argue, quite badly. So I can, you know, coming back to the idea of the mobile telephone in its most basic form, I can talk to somebody somewhere in the world from wherever I am, whatever I'm doing. I can be on the bus walking down the street. But what that essentially means is I'm, I'm, I'm how could I put it, a, a kind of tele-schizophrenic. It's to, you know, it's, it's, I'm split, my presence is split between the two worlds, the digital world where my presence is projected somewhere and the physical world where I'm trying to navigate walking down the street. And I'm doing both very badly. I'm bumping into people and annoying them, but I'm not really focused on the phone call either. So it's a matter of taking a step back and saying, well, what, why are we doing this act? I think the, uh, slow food movement did a similar thing with, with, with cooking and eating in the 1970s and obviously still existing to this day and saying, well, eating is a pleasure. What does it mean to eat? And so that engages you with a local environment, with, with local foodstuffs, with seasonal uh, foods, with, with slow cooking uh, and so on. And it's, a, it's almost like celebrating the, 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 the idea of eating, you know, the, the, the mo- you can use the same analogy with a mobile phone that, that, you know, that you could have a very slow conversation on the phone where you're thinking about who you're talking to and making the perfect environment for that. Um, you know, the, the mobile phone is, is the example of going to McDonald's and just having a burger because it's quick and easy. Um, you know, so it's a matter of everything we do, we can really analyze how we do it and then make more appropriate choices. I think that's what people have stopped doing. Because technology is so ubiquitous and because devices do so many things in such an efficient way, we use them because we can rather than because we should. What happens when you take that to a bit of an extreme and test that theory? Because I know that in the past you have worked on a project, James, around this, the, the isophone project, where you really looked at you know, what happens when you focus people's senses entirely on the conversation rather than on being distracted by the myriad other things that a, a phone could do. Well, how, how did people react to that? Um, and, and well, perhaps it would be best to start by explaining a bit about exactly what you did with, with Isophone to get people into that very focused state. Yeah. So the, the Isophone was a project 
I developed with uh, a long-term collaborator, Jimmy Loazzo. We were working at Media Lab Europe, which is the MI, was the European partner of the MIT Media Lab in the early 2000s. And it was really a reaction to the growth of mobile telephones. They weren't smartphones at that time. It was really during the rapid growth period when suddenly everybody everywhere was talking in public on the phone. And being in a tech company, we wanted to start to analyze that and develop or think about what the flip side might be. So, as I said, you know, there's this critique of mobile phones where you're sort of almost schizophrenic. We wanted to take away the physical world, remove the physical presence or your awareness, the way the senses operate in the physical world, diminish that as much as possible so the, the user's only existing in the telephonic world. Uh, the, the solution was to borrow from sensory deprivation theory. So we went in some sensory deprivation tanks to, to, to figure out how they work and then built our own combined with a telephone. So essentially the user wears a helmet. It's opaque, so you can't see anything coming in from the world. It's uh, acoustically padded, so you can't hear anything from the physical world. You're floating in a, in a, in a vat of water. It's essentially a giant kettle which heats the water to body temperature is about 37 degrees, I seem to remember, 36 degrees. Uh, that diminishes the sense of touch. So your, your, your body f flows into the water. You don't feel anything anymore. So the only thing coming into your mind, the only thing that you're sensing is the voice of the person you wish to talk to who's somewhere else in the world. And there's nothing else happening at all at that time. Uh, we built this as a, as a working prototype. Uh, we demoed it at uh, it's a festival called Ars Electronica. It happens in, in Linz, Austria, every year. And we shipped out two of these enormous tanks to the main square of Austria and had, I don't know, it's about 40 or 50 people testing it during a four-day period. And these weren't just the, the sort of technophiles visiting the, the, the festival. They were everyday people from Linz, people just passing through the square, intrigued as to what was going on, who volunteered to have this free phone call. <laughs> And it was, I mean, it wasn't really surprising. <laughs> we, it was, we, we, we did uh, receive the, the, the perfect feedback and the people were coming out and were blown away by how different the conversation was. Um, they were hearing every nuance of the person's voice. They were engaging in a way that they hadn't engaged with people for a long time because nowhere does it exist that you can have this phenomenally focused interaction which for us really celebrated the idea of telecommunication. You know, it's an amazing technological capability to communicate with someone somewhere else in the world. Rather than have it whilst you're sitting on a bus, let's make this something special. Uh, and that's essentially what it did. It was, did you have a go in it yourself? Did you test your own invention? I used to almost every day. We, <laughs> we, we had them set up in, uh, we had a big hangar. We were in, in one of the old Guinness buildings in Dublin, and we had the tanks working in a, in a back room. And I used to go in there every day and under the premise that I was testing them out. And I had an underwater speaker playing Radio 4. <laughs> I just used to sit there for a couple of hours sometimes, just relaxing and thinking about the world. Yeah, that body temperature element of it, I find fascinating. The idea that you remove that focus on the sense of uh, touch and, and tactility by bringing the temperature up around you to the same as the internal temperature of your, your body. I think that, that would be a fascinating thing to experience. Yeah, we had other ideas. We wanted to build a, a cinema that operated in the same way. So, you know, again, the cinemas do this quite well if you go to a good quality cinema with uh, fantastic surround sound. For me, it's totally spoiled by all of the people eating popcorn. Whoever had the idea that popcorn and cinema go together <laughs> should, should be hung up. But, uh, we, you know, the idea that you use the isolation theory to, to, to really engage in a film, that you would be almost transported into the, into the film itself, we, we thought would be a, a wonderful experience. We never actually got that prototype working, unfortunately. So one of the things that this makes me think about is, I suppose, something which seems to be growing within our MEX community as an awareness is the importance of considering multi-sensory elements within digital experience design. And we actually ran a session on this at our most recent 
MEX conference uh, about a year ago now, where we brought in um, some designers from an agency called Flying Object who have specialized in this. They've worked with people like the Tate Gallery in London to provide people with these kind of experiences where uh, there's a digital element to it, but you're also tapping into all sorts of other senses as well to give a, a complete experience. And perhaps there's been an assumption in that, that this is about working with um, giving people sensory experiences through a number of different channels at the same time. But actually, a project like this, I guess, makes you really think about perhaps one of the more important things here is to consider which senses you're going to actually take away from people at the same time as uh, increasing the input to other senses and that actually the absence of an experience through one sensory channel can be just as uh, important, just as significant in shaping a good experience for them uh, as giving them um, active input through those different channels. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, sometime I think it was after the isophone, uh, after we demoed that, I, I, I did read an article about uh, a dark restaurant. It was a while ago now, but I seem to remember it being in Berlin where I believe the waiters were, were blind people and you would eat in darkness as a way of enhancing the, the, the sense of taste. So, again, you know, removing senses that aren't necessary for, for, for the eating experience and then the sense of taste becomes somehow far, I don't know, amplified, I suppose. I never actually tried it, but I did read that it was quite a profound experience. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, you know, as soon as you start taking away... Some of the sensory experience, naturally, I think the others become heightened. You pay more attention to them. Um, you know, one of the other you know, very good reasons for being as involved as possible, I think, with people who have various different accessibility and inclusive design requirements around the, the technology products in their lives, because you get that different perspective on what it can really mean to use something where you have to be very focused on a single sensory channel. There's a huge amount of, of insight, I think, which can then spill over into other areas and, and, and broader groups of users. No, I completely agree. Uh, this is, if we want to spin it back a little bit, uh, for me, one of the bigger problems with the Silicon Valley approach or the, the, the big tech company approach is that I think users are treated as generic entities, that uh, everybody is considered to be pretty much the same. And great design can only happen when you embrace difference and complexity, realize that every experience is unique and somehow try to, I don't know, encourage people to, to, to I don't know, to embrace that notion. Um, and I, I just don't see it happening enough. Yeah, I think many in the MEX community would be on the, the same page with you there, that importance of really recognizing users as individuals and, and celebrating the various differences that uh, make us all who we are and making sure that those are reflected in the, the design of, of digital products. You know, I think that's very much at the heart of how you take these things forward in a, a positive way. Um, but I, I'm curious, you know, as to what comes next for, for you, James, and, and you, Julian, with this project crap futures and also other outlets for it as well because obviously the blog now has become pretty well known out there on the interwebs but um, i know there are other projects that you're working on to bring this to people in a, a more tangible form in uh, events and so on what's the next big thing on the the calendar for you with this uh, the next big thing is really quite soon actually james just got back hours ago i think from barcelona where he, he was meeting with people at the cccb uh, about a project we're doing where then it's a, it's a gallery in Barcelona. Sorry, a gallery. And they, we were fortunate. They gave us a prize uh, last spring, I guess, for uh, it was the uh, international in cultural international cultural innovation international award. That, that's what it was uh, for something we made called the Newton machine. Um, and uh, that has enabled us now um, until an exhibition in January um, to work on sort of uh, renewable energy in, in different sites in Madeira, uh, Orkney, um, and, and then Barcelona for the exhibition. Um, and we're actually going up to Orkney tomorrow uh, to do the kind of rough work um, up there with building things. Uh, from one island to, to another, perhaps a slightly 
different island experience at this time of year to be going up to Orkney. Um, so you mentioned the, the Newton machine. What does the Newton machine do? That's a good question. We're still defining. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're, we're still defining that. The, the Newton machine is more <clears> of a principle. <throat> uh, it's looking at energy. The starting point for it really came from again generic solutions. The the way we consume energy at this time really across the world is through plug sockets in walls. So likewise, I was mentioning the central heating system, coming back to the device paradigm. Uh, if, if you want to use an electrical product, you just simply plug a plug into the socket and then the thing magically works. So that, that's from a consumer's point of view how we use the, the product, but also from a designer's point of view. So if I'm, as a designer, tasked with for example, designing a kettle, my responsibility ends at the plug on the end of the cable. I don't have to think about where the energy comes from, where the electricity comes from, because that's so much taken for granted. But what happens if we remove that assumption? What happens through the wall is the, the metaphor behind the project. So the new machine is, is really looking at energy transformations, is, is looking at how energy can, can be captured, how it can be stored, how we can interact with it, but all from a very local perspective. So through the wall in Madeira reveals large cliff sides. It's volcanic. It's very vertiginous. I can never say that word properly. It's, uh, so the first solution for Madeira for, for, for energy storage came with uh, the idea of a gravity battery emerged. So exploiting the vertical cliffs, you've got the height there to lift a mass into the air, that mass is lifted using solar energy because solar is great, but it only works when the sun shines. What happens if you want any, the energy during the evening? So we lift the mass into the sky, and then when we, we need the energy, we drop the mass, and that generates the electricity for consumption. But this is all built using, as I said, the local terrains, being very vertical in Madeira, is using local scrap parts, things that we found in a local scrapyard or junk heap, using local skills and machinery so we're not doing anything that your average person, I don't know what the average person is, but, but people with, with basic layman skills could put together. So it's, it's really decentralizing energy and shifting it away from something that is owned and ran and, and, and controlled by large corporations to being something that can happen very much on the local scale. And another important aspect of it is is, is it changes the way we interact with energy. Energy suddenly becomes extremely tangible. So we're also developing a couple of domestic products that use gravity to generate the power. We've got a, a record player, a, a turntable, and a gravity lamp. So it's not just crude DIY using scrap in the scrappy challenge kind of way, but we're also developing a couple of hopefully quite elegant and desirable domestic products. And these are there to challenge not only energy interactions, but also, I guess, the, the monopoly that the big design corporations hold on, on, on desire and how it, uh, how it arrives in our lives. So, you know, big companies, factories somewhere else in the world, making things and then distributing them radially to be bought by people at the end of the chain. We're talking about local manufacturing systems. So in Madeira, we're talking to local cabinet makers and local metal shops, giving them the drawings to make these things. So you end up with very local infrastructure providing us with the, the means and the, the, the methods to develop new products. Is an island like Madeira or Orkney a necessary crucible for other designers to be able to go out and test some of these theories for themselves or are there recommendations that you would put out there to people in the MEX community who might be listening to this and who want to try some of these things for themselves but don't unfortunately have access to a, an island environment in which to, to test and in, inspire them? I don't think the island's necessary at all. It's a great place to reflect. And of course, islands have always been places where people do experiment with ideas. Different rules have different rules exist, different possibilities emerge. Orkney is... The reason we're going to Orkney is they have a very, very, very interesting relationship with their energy. Being on the periphery, energy is something that they do not take for granted. So they've been very experimental over a number of years. 
and they're very, very keen to embrace experiments and, and, and emerging solutions. So for us, we, we, we've been building the prototypes in Madeira. Orkney is a testing ground also on the periphery, but it's working with like-minded people. The next phase in Barcelona, we'll be taking what we've learned at the periphery to the center. But there's no reason these ideas can't work in, in central locations as well. It's, it's just a matter of acknowledging that there are problems in the way technology is developed and deployed at this time, exploring and analyzing what those problems might be. Um, if you dig a little bit deeper into crap futures, you'll see we've got this theory called reconstrained design, where we analyze and discuss uh, and, and write about constraints that we think are making or leading to problematic technological pathways, and then we reconstrain them. So I think the gravity battery, the Newton machine, is an example of of a reconstrained design in practice. And that can happen anywhere. You don't have to be on the periphery to use these ideas. It's um, something perhaps that we should all try from time to time to introduce those kind of constraints to, to our workers as experienced designers. And perhaps that idea of really focusing in on the things that we take for granted every day and removing those one by one and seeing how that challenges and provokes you to, to think about the future in a slightly different way could be a very positive thing to try regardless of whether you're doing this in an island environment, big city environment. There's always something that you start to take for granted. I suppose the most basic that springs to mind for most of the people who will be listening to this podcast these days is um, that you're working with connected devices that always have some kind of internet connection available to them. And what happens when you remove that and force yourself to build an experience from the ground up that's going to work regardless of whether or not the internet connection is there. Yeah, little games, if you like, that you can play um, you know, as a, a designer to challenge yourself to, to move your practice forward um, are probably something we should all try and make a bit of time for. I think so. I mean, I, what worries me more is, I mean, Julian and myself are, uh, I won't say getting on a bit, but you know, we, don't, we don't want to come across as being grumpy old men on crap futures. That, that's too easy. But we are from a very interesting generation where we knew life before smartphones, before the internet. Uh, both of us have young children. We have uh, teenage, well, almost teenage sons, 12 and 13, and daughters of 9 and 10. And to see the way, to observe them engaging with with technology, with smartphones, with interactive systems, is it's the, it's the classic digital native thing. And for them, they don't know another life you know they're, they're, they're obsessed with things like uh, YouTube and how many viewers a particular person has as though that's the best metric for success in this planet <laughs> it, it's a very very different time and for me this is the, the, the fundamental thing that I'm trying to do in, in bringing up a child is for them to be able to dislocate from that world to differentiate between the virtual world and the actual world, not these things, for, not for these worlds to merge together in, in, the, in the kind of classic uh, media augmented experience way. I mean, I, I can see a time and place for augmented reality, but I love the real world. I also love the technological world, but I, I like to pick and choose and think about what's the most appropriate for a particular activity. And I think it's essential that um, we help our children do the same. I'm slightly pessimistic because for me it's an ongoing battle with my son because all of his friends at school are online probably 12 hours a day. They're playing games all weekend and their parents really aren't managing this at all. So it's it's really an ongoing battle that, that drives us all to distraction. Uh, but it's also, uh, I think, one of the key themes uh, that we write about is uh, – well, tease. <laughs> We're always um, using the phrase "take back control," and then and then realizing it's kind of a loaded phrase nowadays. But um, uh, kind of um, yeah, to trying to find uh, our agency, and I, I see that in my kids, um, trying to uh, help them to take a take an act, always have an active um, role in their use of technology, and remembering that they're that they're agents, uh, and um, that they can make change in the world and that they don't just have to let things happen to them and let the technology wash over them and make decisions for them. Well, I think you've picked up on some hugely inspiring themes with the, the work you guys are doing in the projects and with the the Crap Futures uh, blog as a whole. Um, 
I'll make sure we put links in the show notes to, to all of these various different endeavors so that people can go and check them out. And it would be great to, to stay in touch and um, see the results that come out of the, the work that you're doing in Madeira and Barcelona and, and Orkney uh, and see you know where these go in the future. But thanks to you both for taking the time to come on the show and talk about this today. It's been a, a real pleasure to learn more about the initiative. Likewise, thanks for the invitation. Absolutely. Thanks a lot. enjoyed hearing James and Julian's story as much as I did. Now don't forget those show notes at mobileuserexperience.com where you can get easy links to all of the things. There are a lot of things that we talked about in this particular episode, but I particularly encourage you to check out that Isophone project if you're looking for an alternative steampunk vision of what talking on the phone could be. Uh, Also a reminder about the next jobs board. If you're hiring or looking for a role in user-centered experience design, it really is a great place to connect and you can find it at mobileuserexperience.com slash jobs. I'll be back with another episode of Mech's Design Talk soon. But in the meantime, do drop me a line and let me know what you thought of this show uh, or if you've got ideas for future guests and topics that we could cover. It's Mech's Feed on Twitter or design talk at mobileuserexperience.com by email. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.